for August 9th, 2021. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 684. The film's heart was in the middle of the starfish. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, well, we're not unlike prisoners, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Doing a podcast for 12 years is not unlike, (laughs) you know, it is time. We have done it and it is time. It is a unit of time. So, you know, I would say that we're like uh, a bunch of, a bunch of people doing time in uh, maximum security, uh, sort of black site type of prison who can uh who can we we bargained right we bargained originally with apple podcasts to uh get time taken off our sentence for every episode of this this podcast that we do if you, ha- you haven't figured out yet we're talking about uh, the suicide squad a suicide squad one suicide squad <laughs> actually yes one suicide squad and not the other one but the definitive Suicide Squad. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my squad members, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Podcast good. <laughs> okay, Groot. I'm sorry, not Groot. <laughs> no, Shark- no, 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 no. Different, different guy. Totally different thing. Totally different thing. Not related. Shark. Shark man. So obviously, uh, I want to start this conversation off talking about, and you know, all spoilers, all books for the Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to start this off, uh, by asking what must be the question that is on everybody's mind right now, which is Pete Fenzel, have you read Donna Tartt's 2014 <laughs> <laughs> novel, The Goldfinch? Uh, my wife was super into Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, actually, when she was reading it, to the extent that I even watched the movie with her. And she related to me a lot of uh, her thoughts, feelings, and insights about the book, The Goldfinch, uh, while, uh, while she was going through it. I also uh, have, have, over the course of, you know, that championship season, as we've been calling it, developed a bit of a fondness for songbirds and have been putting up a, a bird feeder, which I'll also remark on at some point. And I've had no shortage of goldfinches come to my bird feeder to eat the seed that I put out uh, before the squirrels managed to get it. So I am familiar, in fact, with goldfinches as animals and goldfinches as art objects in 2010's contemporary art, as well as maybe going back, we'll go on a little mini tour of the history of golden birds in Western culture, uh, because there's a golden bird in this movie, in the Suicide Squad, and I can't think of a better place to start this uh, conversation about the Suicide Squad than with killing the golden bird, right? Which is, uh, uh, I guess, to, to flesh that out a little bit, there's there's a couple of different touch points. I think the golden bird in, is something of a transcendental signifier. Uh, I know we're, we tend to be kind of Derrida fans on this podcast a little more than not. Uh, so the transcendental signifier being the idea of, you know, an expression of art or communication that corresponds to some thing that sort of that as a as a sort of was well, a signifier right um as a as a language object of sorts right corresponds intuitively with something right except there isn't really a thing that it corresponds to it's kind of vague and above everything right so so sort of the way that we talk and make art in rarefied ways about you know that which is beyond understanding you know Derrida refers to that as kind of a transcendental signifier and i think to an extent the goldfinch the golden bird 
is something of a transcendental signifier, but also it, it refers to a bunch of specific things. And in the context of the Suicide Squad, right, a movie rich with character development, tons of character development in this movie, tons of character development in this movie happening through pathetic drops and conversations about, you know, Downton Abbey moment style conversations about random stuff, right? Um, all names are made of letters, right? It's, you know, it's stuff like, uh, man, I have the javelin, but I don't know what it's for, right? Mm. God will tell me, right? Yep. All this other stuff. Um, but in the beginning of the movie, we meet Savant, right? Who's a member of one of the suicide squads. And, and he's an old man in prison and he is bouncing a ball around his prison cell and, and a goldfinch comes upon the ball uh, and, or comes upon the corner of the cell and he throws a ball at it and he kills it. More than, so, more than that, even Pete, he like he does an elaborate like bank shot off of three of the walls, <laughs> right, right. angled yeah, angled dope. precisely such that you know the the velocity and and uh, angle of it has gone to you know is yeah is uh, lethal to the poor right. little goldfinch there in the in the um in the corner of the cell. Right. So one thing that a goldfinch is right is the subject of the 17th century painting The Goldfinch by uh, Carol Fabridius which is notable for having been lost for hundreds of years, right? It's like a little Dutch painting of a bird chained to a perch and they just, they just lost it. Right. Um, and then they eventually found it again. And so because of this, it features prominently in this pretty well-known book that was, uh, kind of a big deal, you know, seven or eight years ago, which is about timeless uh, this timeless art object. It's the idea that this this boy comes into possession of this painting uh, in a, a terrorist attack of some sort or a bombing, I should just say, and I'll get that specific, that kills his mom. And so he goes through his life and bad things happen to him. But there's this art object that he has that both causes him problems, but also, you know, serves as sort of an eternity relative to the mutability of his life, right? The goldfinch painting is kind of beautiful and static. The things in his life are kind of, sometimes they're beautiful, but often they are crappy and they change a lot. Does, and a lot he, of, does uh, the boy, yeah. does the boy get eaten by the goldfinch? Uh, yes. The goldfinch eventually <laughs> comes to life and starts talking to him. Got and it. then he takes the goldfinch into a trip into Hieronymus Bosch's uh, idea of hell yes. where they get this cool taxi cab car and they drive. And then Christopher Lloyd is there and there's a big tub of goop. Um, it's, okay. it's all very familiar. Everything that happens to the goldfinch is familiar. But the idea that the golden bird is this eternal art object that stands in opposition to life, right, which is mutable and messy and sad a lot of the time. Uh, it's something that you can go back to and, and touch on in a lot of places, right? It's, it's, it recalls Keats, right? And the sort of art object, the Grecian urn and Oda the Nightingale, right? And the idea that these beautiful art objects are kind of being frozen uh, in the romantic work of this, you know, flame that burns twice as hot, burns fa half as long, poet, he dies young, right? All this other stuff. Um, also, the uh, are you familiar with Hero of Alexandria? Um, and, and the idea of sort of ancient Greek automata, I think there's kind of a meme as it were of a golden bird that sings that might've been something he built. Uh, and, uh, that at least it's recorded in medieval manuscripts that may or may not be accurate that this, you know, Greek engineer and theater artist who basically made theater sets, but, uh, -huh. uh they were wonders made these golden birds that sing, um, which I think are referred to in the work of Yeats, not Keats. Right. And, and I think one of the Byzantium poems. Right. And the idea that these like uh, who is also talking about mutability, immutability. Right. Uh, what changes, what stays the same? Is there sort of beautiful song 
that persists beyond deterioration, beyond the sort of uh, temporal limitations of our own lives. So, so what um, you're saying, I mean, this is really this is an anxiety of influence type of reading, is what you're offering. At least that's what I'm taking away from what you're saying, because you're saying that at the beginning of the film, James Gunn destroys all of Western culture. He actually destroys the first Suicide Squad movie, which is just, which is, which is the same. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, Academy Award-winning film, Suicide Squad. I am glad that I was. I was glad that I was making enough sense that you got the point that I was getting to. Yes, is that James Gunn both destroys the idea of permanence in art, right, and also the first Suicide Squad movie, and also the notion of canon, right? The idea that like superhero movies are these like crafted things or superhero stories in general that have to remain as they always were. Right. Uh, and, uh, and because they've been crystallized, right. They've been kind of set in set in stone. Right. And so you can't redo it. This is a movie that flagrantly ignores much of the previous suicide squad movie. Right. There's some connections. There's some characters that it has in common. There's some, certainly some overall broad strokes of the plot, uh, but there's a lot that it just never references. The Joker isn't in it at all. Will Smith isn't in it at all, although we could talk more about the ways that he kind of is. Um, and uh, there's no mention of the Enchantress or any of the other things that happened, right? Uh, Captain Boomerang is, of course, in it, but spoilers, bites it early. Uh, and yeah, and, and then also it's this idea that this isn't going to be a, a story of kind of beautiful immortality, right? This is, this is going to be of like, you know, the Ninja Turtles and the Shredder are in a never ending battle that never changes and never, and never ends. Right. Sure. Uh, that's what never ending battles do is they never end. Um, but I would also, it also suggests that, um, that it's, it's also about things like the Birdman of Alcatraz. And I know why the cage bird sings and this, this, this romantic notion of, the imprisoned soul as a sort of thing for your that yearns for freedom in a holy way. Uh, and uh, and this is a movie that starts out by undermining that suggestion entirely. Right. In the sense that it's getting gets splatted. Right. The imprisoned the imprisoned soul gets splatted. It doesn't like soar to defy its circumstances. Um, so, OK, this is all great stuff, Pete. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to kind of challenge it on a, on a couple of different fronts here. The, yeah. To start with on this kind of sense of the imprisoned soul. Right. And how right, like, right, say right, that right. The, the movie like, kind of undermines this notion of it. Like, just to be clear, though, right, like, you know, the su- members of the Suicide Squad themselves, right, though they are ostensibly like, you know, prisoners of Amanda Waller and like, you know, can be like deleted from the earth at any time. Like they kind of break free from that prison and not on their own, like for, from a lot of help. But like, you know, they do spring from that trap of sorts. Right. Well, the ones um, who survive. Yeah. The ones at the end the of the ones who survive. Who survive. Yeah. 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 And there's this whole thing as well, too, about the whole, like, you know, <laughs> the interstellar starfish, mind controlling starfish yeah. thing, which is all about, like, imprisonment of the mind. Right? right. Which is which is important. Now, granted, like, you know, the most of the people of Corto Maltese do not really escape from it. It's a little bit ambiguous there, which is maybe something we're, we're talking about. But like just zooming out, maybe the most important thing like uh, that at the very surface level or just like one level below the surface that the goldfinch is representing. Right. Is uh, this notion of expendability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. And, 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 you know, like the, the bird there is killed sadistically by um, a savant um, and uh, the movie sets it up as like, well, that is not the model that we are going for here. Right now, you know, sure. Like, you know, life lots of life is cheap in this movie for sure, but yeah. not all of it, because if you truly treated all of it as cheap and expendable as Amanda Waller does, then, um, you know, you're just in a in a death spiral to 
to complete nihilism and moral bankruptcy. Uh, and so, like, you know, the movie, like, <laughs> sure, like, you know, offs a whole bunch of uh, people, including, like, you know, important allies, <laughs> which is just kind of, you know, <laughs> scoffed off and played for laughs. Um, but uh, it, 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 it manages to salvage some kind of, like, you know, barter thematic piece that ties all the way back to the bird getting killed. At the very yeah, beginning, yeah, right? yeah. That 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 is all like you know. None of that to say is that that, that invalidates any of the points you're making, though, Pete. Right. So, um, but I wanted to kind of like just uh, put that kind of you know flip side. Yeah, it's worth noting that this is a movie. This is a movie that has an arc to it. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. That that it starts out a certain way and then it changes, right? And, and I think the change feels earned. The the because the, there's the moment where the Suicide Squad could just walk away. They've been told to just walk away and they should just walk away and they should let Starro the Conqueror <laughs> feast, you know, and, and not feast, but like expand himself uh, at the expense of the lives of all of the people of Cordo Maltese. And I mean, presumably the world like nobody thinks this is a problem. Right. Uh, but uh, it's Starro the Conqueror. He's a big deal. You know, Superman fought him like way back in the 60s. Uh, and um, but yeah, but then they decide that they're going to go back into town and they're going to. They're going to save the town. They're going to save the island. They're going to save every, you know, they're going to save people generally. Um, and I'm trying to think about what it is that causes the change, right? Certainly it, it helps that certain people who would have definitely resisted it are dead and or mortally wounded and left to be discovered in the after credits. Uh, but, um, but that, uh, you know, what is it about? Cause, cause when I think about moments where warriors, change sides in literature for altruistic reasons, right? Like what transformation happens? It's often set against the percent, you know, the experience of grief uh, and of, and uh, the really powerful reminders of mortality. I mean, I'm reminded of book 24 of the Iliad, right? With Achilles and Priam coming to sort of a mutual understanding over the body of Hector and talking about their shared mortality. Right. And, um, the idea that Achilles gives over the body of Hector to Priam for a proper burial, not necessarily out of respect for Hector and not necessarily out of respect for norms or the gods, but rather for the mutual understanding of the, the mortality of both of them and how that in an abstract sort of way seems to call for some degree of kindness right, and mutual understanding, even in the face of such hope, hopeless barbarism as the Trojan War, right? Um, and I think the Suicide Squad arrives at something like that, although, you know, made by trauma, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> sort giant of. pulsing tentacles and like, you know, I mean, I'll say this, Starro isn't not a butthole, right? Because <laughs> 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 like, like, yeah. <laughs> that's the other thing is that this is also, I guess that's the other dimension of killing the goldfinch is that this is not high art. This is like, in fact, this is like very deliberately low art. Right. Like like as in they're not he's not it's not like, oh, we're not trying. And it's this is just no, 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 but it's movie. not. I mean, it is it is interesting the kind of the ways the the kind of the feints and maneuvers that the MCU, for example, has done towards a kind of like middle brow respectability, you know, right. that like, oh, this is about this is about the surveillance state. You know, or this mm -hmm. is about authoritarianism or this, you know, this is about um uh, 
you know, whatever. Like, you know, these are these are big topics that people write newspaper op-eds about. And that like these are the things that these are the things that we're doing. Uh this th- these are the things that these films are really really about. It's not, you know, all of you people who are, you know, criticizing comic book movies for being childish are wrong because like it's uh you know, because uh we're we're talking about drone warfare here. You know, <laughs> and that's like and and like all, all the people who are criticizing comic book movies for being childish are wrong, but for different reasons than yeah. than uh than that. And the 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 sort of like um you know the the answer but the the answer to that anxiety, you know, about you know whether this is serious enough or not, whether this is a sort of worthy thing of all the the time and resources and whatnot, um, is to like aspire to be a John Updike novel, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. that's not what that's not what James Gunn has in mind for no. the suicide. This is a story that verges spot. on Ubu at times. <laughs> <laughs> like like wait, when wait, the wait, dic- wait. unpack that. Oh, Ubu Matt, do you want to tell Mark what Ubu is? <laughs> Let's talk about the theater of the absurd. Yeah, <laughs> Mark. Mark uh, Please, Ubu the King, Ubu Roi, <laughs> is a uh, uh, is a play by who? Jarry, uh, Alfred yeah. Jarry, uh, who? Um, and it's about I. You know, I I don't even know the 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 um I don't even know the the details except that the first word is like nailed you know <laughs> and you you have to say it like that too and I think yeah. he like mispronounces it or something like that it's like nailed you know or something like um the uh right and like he's you know it's King Ubu sitting there and then just all these all these uh absurd and terrible things happen I'm sorry I don't have yeah. a better synopsis no, no, than no, I that, would say Pete. that like it is a it is a you could call it a satire sort of gently, but it is a political it is a piece of political theater that is uh, deliberately obscene and also deliberately concerned with the dismemberment of the human body and the sort of reflection of the human body as like a mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's per, it's performed in the style of a puppet play, I believe. But but uh, but again, but it but has a main character who is a sort of cruel and petty and vain king figure who reflects to everybody what a terrible person he is while engaging in, in sort of like way over the top absurd acts of, you know, whether it's depravity or, or irresponsibility and such. So like when there's a scene in this movie where a, uh, a a central American dictator emerges shirtless from a hot tub with like a ripped six pack in order to like seduce uh, the Joker's girlfriend as a symbol of anti-American liberation, right? Like, like, like that is, that is Man. not, a, it is, it is like, you could say, well, is that really, that's not politics the way the Marvel universe plays politics. That's not like, well, Sokovia is an actual country where actual people live. And so you should care about what happens to them when you fight the robots that are there. Right. Like you shouldn't just be very casual about fighting robots wherever they are because people live there and those people will also be hurt when you hurt the robots. Shame on you. Right. And I don't mean to say that that's bad, but that's not what Suicide Squad is doing. Right. Suicide Squad, they like they're like trick shotting dudes with their dicks out who are trying to brush their teeth. Right. Who haven't done anything wrong. And these are the heroes. Right. And so it's like there's a real and, and it is highly political. Right. And there's a lot of it that's political. And so it's connected to that political theater of the absurd where the notion of what is serious and what is important collapses. Uh, right. Uh, the idea being, 
for some reason, the book that comes to mind that is the antithesis of all of this is Shogun. <laughs> just because my my dad, when I was a kid, had like a copy of Shogun that was like really thick with tiny print and had like a one of those gold covers where the letters were in relief were like fluffy. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you think sort of about grand historical uh, 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 novels. You know, that's what they are. Novels that make a political point. There is a respectability to them. You know, even and there is sure, body, and there's a right? there's a tradition. You know, there's a long tradition to the 19th century and beyond. Like Tolstoy was that for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and people, of course, thought Tolstoy was the bee's knees and still do. Um, although perhaps they've moved on to younger bees with you know younger knees. Um, but uh, but yeah, but like, but the idea that you have to add this sort of gravitas to the situation. Um, in order to make a point about politics is is being deliberately undermined, while also somewhat indulged in, but mostly undermined um, in this movie. Well, in there's, a way. I mean, there, there's a couple of of ways of doing it, right? Like, there's, yeah. you know, we're going to make Russia. Okay, here, here's our goal is to use this drama to use the plot to use the you know characters' points of view to use like essentially like a lot of speechifying usually in order to make a. a a rational argument, right? Like that would, mm-hmm. that would stand up on the pages of Newsweek. Right? Yeah, yeah. About, the end uh, of Falcon and Winter Soldier being like a great example of this. Yeah. Yes, right? yes, 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 yes. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's, yeah. but you know, another, it's different. It's not political argumentation. It's, it's, it, it functions sort of as undercutting, but it, it's like what, what happened in a lot of art after the first world war Right. That like the the level the level of brutality or the level of kind of absurdity, the level of inhumanity uh, to which we have have sunk doesn't make sense. And like the idea that that there are institutions, you know, there are like there there is um there are like departments, you know, there are people standing there at desks, you know, working away in service of this brutality and in service of this inhumanity um, is so ridiculous, you know, that all we can do is well, like all, all it can be is a talking shark, you know, that that's like, there's no, there's no rational argumentation. There's like, there's, there's no way that like William F. Buckley is going to like appear on television and debate someone, <laughs> you know, in order to like, in order to have like a pro and a con on this, on this argument. And I feel like that's where, you know, I, I actually feel like it's a really good, it's a really healthy development for you know commercial cinema to to be going into because this is the best look i'm not saying that uh any film can can fix uh american political polarization but um if if one can uh it's the one with the the weasel walking on its hind legs um that you know nearly drowns gets saved and then blows up on the uh on the field of battle you know that's uh i'm, I'm not saying it, that all of america is going to come out um holding hands uh what i am saying is hand <laughs> so mark do you want to go into the politics of this movie a little bit more specifically like what is it talking about 
What is it saying? Because we've already mentioned what it's talking about with regards to art and superhero movies. Um, I, I guess I don't know. I have another one other point to make about that, but I'll hold on to it because uh, just came to mind. But um, yeah, I'll, about I'll, I'll politics. Give, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll start at the biggest level, the kind of international politics and uh, uh, national security and that sort of thing. And, and I'm sure there's other stuff to talk about here, right? But the the thrust of the movie, the conspiracy, central conspiracy, essentially becomes that the United States was involved in bringing the starfish alien to earth uh, from space, um, even after it knew that it uh, was not benign, right? It had like, you know, multiplied and uh, taken over multiple astronauts. Um, They bring this result back to earth, stash it away in Corto Maltese, this kind of nowhere country, backwater country uh, where uh, it can be hidden and uh, covered under wraps by a military dictatorship. Wait, it's, Uh, it's Cuba, right? It's Cuba. Oh yeah, it's, it's totally. No, no, Cuba. it's not. Is it, it's oh, I guess it's Cuba, but it's like Cuba in the early twentieth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Before, they thought, before they, Castro. Yeah, yeah. They thought that it was Panama. Well, anyway, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that government, the friendly government in the United States, gets overthrown. The new government there, you know, represents a a an unacceptable risk to the United States that they will um uh you know blow this out into the open right and reveal the United States role in this. This is too uh, embarrassing uh, for the government to handle. So. Amanda Waller sends in the Suicide Squad to go in and cover it up. Um, and as you know, we've been talking about before, right? The heroes have this, um, you know, uh, a turn of heart, right? Where they uh, essentially accomplish the mission, or at least they, they've, you know, blown up the tower. Um, they can take the electronic evidence, the last piece of electronic evidence, destroy it, and kind of walk away from it. Um, but they choose not to. Um, and the end of it, by the way, is that uh, uh, they, they don't, you know, release electronic evidence of this. Uh, they use that instead as leverage for Waller to get, you know, favorable treatment, uh, you know, uh, they, they can walk away and get their freedom and that sort of thing. So that is like kind of the geopolitics level there, right? That like, you know, American interventionism uh, is just kind of morally bankrupt <laughs> right? in that way. Uh, that that I think is like a, a pretty easy thesis statement to read from the movie. Uh, Peter, Matt, would you say that there are others or would you challenge that statement? No, I mean, no, anything I, sorry. Oh, go uh, ahead, yeah. It's, uh, what, what you say is what you say is right. I, I think you have to like understand the relationship of the suicide squad to that, you know, to the, the, uh, what, what the, Lebo- what the dude, what, uh, Jeffrey Lebowski calls the square community. You know, like the because their relationship to the to the square community is what what allows them ultimately to kind of um, like move move beyond it and sort of do, quote unquote, the right thing uh, at the end, which is, you know, uh, kill Star of the Conqueror and not let him, um, uh, you know, face grab starfish face grab all the uh, all the people um, all the people there. Anyway, sorry, Pete, what were you about to say? Oh, no, I was going to I was going to say that, like. While the movie does talk about or engage with the cha- problems and difficulties of kind of great power interventions, and specifically the United States intervening in these smaller countries, it also is not favorable towards the backlashes and and strategic, you know, diametric enemies to that intervention. Right, the idea that the American intervention in Cordo Maltese and its relationship with the family there is opposed by these anti-Americans who are really crazy and bad, right? Like by and large, like the, the guy, the main guy is a sort of aspiring supervillain, I think is what we're supposed to believe. Right. And that he, I mean, he has, he, he comes out of a hot tub, you know, super chiseled to court the, the Joker's ex, 
You know, he wants to be a big player akin to having nuclear weapons and he can terrorize the world. He has right? an aviary. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has, he has, he's like, he's, he's a, he's Dr. No, or what not, not Dr. No, but he's, he's an aspiring supervillain, right? Um, and it's sort yeah, of he's, like, he's yeah, not, yeah. he's not, uh, he's not Dr. No, he's like ABD, no. Yeah, 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 exactly. He's like, yeah, he's like, he's working on his dissertation, but he took a couple years off, right? Um, and it's not clear if he'll ever really, if he'll ever really get back to yeah. it. Yeah, and so part know. of it is that the interventions and counter-interventions are all preventing the people living there from, like, being able to have some sort of sense of control of their own lives, right? And so the solution is not to back the junta that throws out the American stooge, Right. The solution is to find this sort of third way that involves empowering the locals, which is also played for laughs like multiple times as like a comically impossible, stupid, dumb, terrible thing to do, sort of, that also manages to work. Right. It's like because they try to help and then they just end up killing a whole bunch of them like multiple times. Right. So, like, I get okay. There's been a lot of incidences in the movies we've been watching lately where I feel like I've missed key plot points. One of the plot points in this movie that I didn't quite follow was that when the military forces are are converging on Jotunheim, the mm. secret research facility uh, with, that has Starro the Conqueror inside of it and all of the subjects, there's the the military junta is there, right? And then I think the freedom fighters show up too, right? Like the woman is there. Who yeah, it's, the by, it's on the side. It, it's like uh, sort of on the side. Uh, they they remind her that you know while they're while the Suicide Squad is keeping everyone busy at Jotunheim. Yes, um, yes, yes. That you know this will be a good opportunity to to raid the castle. No, it's not a castle. It's yeah, a presidential a palace. palace. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. That like uh, you know that this is the that this is the moment. You know this is the moment you've been waiting for where they're their defenses will be down. So it is, it is sort of incidental to the suicide squatting uh, that's, that's going on. And it's, you know, it's not clear other than like kind of a vague populism. It, it, it doesn't really have any effect on the main character's relationship to each other or to the job that they're, they're trying to do, but it's something that is sort of tossed in there for. So, you know, so the what, thing that I felt like I, I missed was King Shark makes a little doll out of plastic explosive at mm. one point, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, it's you, you know? Mm. And then I think there's a shot of someone's face looking at the doll before it explodes. And I thought that that was the leader of the resistance, but it might have just been somebody else. I might no, have I, not been. Yeah, I think it was a gen. I think it was just like J. Random General. Oh, it's just another person. Okay. I mean, I was I was going back and forth between different devices watching. No, this the, thing. the leader of the resistance is the is the female, right? Who uh, is dismayed yeah. that the Suicide Squad killed all of her compatriots. But she on. was never she was never at Jotunheim. No, she oh, shows okay, up at the okay. end of the presidential palace, and then yeah. um, I thought she was uh, at using, Jotunheim. Using the bulls, uses the bulls of of the people's voice to kill the junta. Yeah, which by the way is being like, I get to be president now. Now I get to be president. Mm-hmm, right? yeah. It's sort of like crazy sort of thing, right? Um, with this sort of awful dance of of geopol of post colonial geopolitics, right? Um, where it's like, yeah, the you know they they've left, but they've left behind a mess, right? Uh, and and it's bad. Um, 
But yeah, no, it's okay. I think that I think the populist paramilitary really has legs, Pete. I think they're really gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I think they're going to hold a constitutional convention. Okay. I think they're going to, you know, yeah, uh, really respect the will of the people. Establish the, the island civil... belongs to the rats, guys. If that's yeah. not an endorsement of democracy, I don't know what it <laughs> right, is. Right. <laughs> Okay, so we're talking about these big political themes here, right? But we also just got off of talking about, you know, the kind of the fun, some of the fundamental absurdities yes, of, of yes, the creative yes. project of this. So, like, really, how seriously are we meant to take these uh, these political arguments? I think we're supposed to take them seriously. I think, well, I think they, they're supposed to mean matter and mean well, something. I think we're supposed right? to take them seriously. I think we're not supposed to take them solemnly. You know, yes, that, yes, that, yes. that mm, like, uh, yeah. you know, that, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of very serious stuff can be very funny or, or, you know, very absurd. And and a lot of super frivolous things can have a, a great deal of solemnity uh, attending them. And this is, you know, this is part of the like the the, you know, quasi absurdist project um, going on here to like really decouple the idea of the idea of solemnity, you know, from the idea of what is quote unquote serious. Um, and that, you know, and that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a shark, you know, it's a, it's a, (laughs) it's a a shark. It doesn't, but like, he's a lonely shark, you know? And when he does, and when he does, when he does meet, like you, you were watching him meet his, his like beautiful sea anemone, uh, friends in the tank, right? When you were watching that, you were like, okay, they turn into piranhas on three, <laughs> two, one. And they actually, it held out longer than I, than I expected it to, which I, I credit James Gunn a great deal for, for yeah. doing, but like, you know, um, yeah. The, okay. the, well, yeah. Since, since we arrived at the, the shark and piranha dance sequence, uh, Eric, and we, maybe we should talk more about the politics later, but can we just unpack that for a second? Because, like, you know, the, the the shark was going on this arc of sorts, right, where he um, is, uh, you know, d- discovering more social relationships, right, and is, is moving beyond this kind of the, the pure instinct of a predator. He's really doing um, a lot of work on himself, for sure. He's doing a lot of work on himself, right? And, and, and you know, it, it seems like we're given a bit of a head fake here. Is that what's going on? Right. That like, this is some sort of breakthrough for him. Um, and, uh, but then it, it's, it's something completely altogether different and just kind of brutal and, uh, and animalistic. It, yeah. But it, like, is the, that the, it or something else? The, you know, look, you, you thought you were here for a journey of self-discovery. You're actually here to be a shark. this is not this was not like this is actually yeah it's not it's not like uh i don't know you know uh, uh it's not shark in venice which is you know a different it's a Thomas Mann novel, I, I believe. It's Terry Fish in Venetic. There's um, also a isn't Sharks of Venice a sci-fi movie or no? It's a joke. Oh, it's sorry, a joke yeah, that uh, we made on the on the podcast oh, a long okay, time okay, ago. Sorry. I think talking yeah. talking about either Sharktopus or one of these Sharknado. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Sharks of Venice is a real is a real movie in the oh, spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that came it. out during that whole shark boom. Um, but anyway, sorry. Yes. Well, we're gonna I, get a, yeah. I mean, it's we're gonna have another uh, another shark renaissance, you know, given the given the fact that Discovery is now the like the largest you know pure play media company in in <laughs> the history. Look, of man, man. JB Smoove and Brad Paisley did some solid Shark Week stuff. I'm saying this this past month, but I will offer a different view of the. I mean, you're right, Matt, but I want to offer a slightly different view of the shark 
sea anemone scene uh-huh. uh, because I liked it. One of the things I liked about it was that it was a show don't tell of a scene we've seen a hundred times in these different movies, which is that. So so King Shark, it, the absurd concept that King Shark is exploring is friendship. Mm. Right. right in the context of unfettered violence right <laughs> the idea that like king shark is a person is it's in his nature to eat people and he's been sent along on this mission for the purpose of eating people but they have to tell him not to eat us only eat them right and this is when he's trying to eat the rat catcher when everybody is asleep and uh and so he they teach him the idea of friends right and then there's this moment after the 8 minute flashback when they're playing the plastic explosives where King shark just sort of goes off on his own, right? Like the rest of his little squad with Harley Quinn and bloodshot and whatnot, is going down the stairs and he goes off on his own and he goes to the aquarium. Right. And what, what this, this scene is the, like, I don't fit in. I'm a monster scene, right? right? That you've heard Ben Grimm say in every fantastic four movie, you know, you've heard Hellboy say it. Hulk says it all the time in different terrible stuff, right? Like, uh, not terrible, but just like I feel like I've seen the like I'm a monster, right? So many times, and it, what it feels like is King Shark is going back to the ocean for the first time, and and what he sees are sea creatures that appear to him in his own image, literally, like they form an image of him when he looks at them, mm. and he challenges them to break the image, but then they come back and they form the image, and he's like, "Wow, these guys are just like me. That means they're my friends." Because he's trying to understand the concept of friends. But then it turns out, no, they're just like you because they also are horrible, ravenous predators. And also, on top of that, it's, yeah, by the way, uh, just because they're from the ocean like you doesn't mean they're who you're supposed to be hanging out with. Like, James Gunn, I think, if you were to find any one point, I think, in all of James Gunn's oeuvre, I think it would have to do with heterogeneity. Mm. Right. In in social relation. Right. The idea that people aren't really supposed to hang out with people who are only just like them and that there's a problem when people very narrowly define themselves and their identities that is mostly taken care of by the things that happen to them that disabuse them of their ability to conform. Right. Like you're you know, the whole outcast. So many stories about outcasts. People who try to fit in and fail and then have to realize that they're not supposed to fit in and they can have a family of choice. Sure. Like, right? Rocket, yeah, friends of the family you choose for yourself. Rocket Raccoon is actually a really good character in this specific connection. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, he, is, you know, yeah. he's a genetic experiment. He's a monster. He doesn't belong anywhere. And like the kind of the journey to belonging for him is, you know, what his his uh, thing is about. So I think there's a question hanging in the air of like is the shark going to side with the starfish? Mm. I think that question sort of hangs there for a moment when King Shark goes to the aquarium, because for all we know, that's sorrow in the aquarium. But instead, they 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 zag to surprise you and they make it these crazy piranhas. Yeah. Where is um, where is that aquarium? I was a little I was a little up the uh, stairs. It's OK, upstairs yeah, I got reason. it. I was a little they have another like, aquarium that's upstairs. I guess they pump water up to it. Is there going right? to be a, like, like a yeah, is there going to be like a just a, I would like a floor plan or something of this museum of this <laughs> of this installation? I'd they like tried to know. real hard to give one to you with like Idris Elba's floor by floor descent. 
you got an architectural cross section that was pretty generous yeah 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 that's like uh, it's not uh i don't know the best the best it's ever been done is the opening sequence of air force one where you're basically just it's there to give you the layout of the plane so that you understand the, the geometry of everything for for later but yeah i mean i feel like i don't know i feel like if if pornhub can do it for every uh major art museum in the world <laughs> you know which on their their you know a uh, little practical joke that they did recently like um i feel like you know james gunn can do it with uh hundreds of millions of dollars from warner brothers in order to just like let us know why i mean it's not it's not just me like star the conqueror seems bigger than the jotunheim tower doesn't he yes doesn't seem like Certainly he should wider. fit Shouldn't he was underground. Right. Well, it's funny because my wife asked me because because actually when I was watching this, my wife watched the last 40 minutes with me or so. So she joined in right after the eight minute flashback and I got her up to speed on everything that had happened, <laughs> which was hilarious. So I was like, so what's going to happen in this sequence is we're going to find out how the other team screwed up to set off the plastic explosive. And it's going to end with Idris Elba stopping John Cena from killing the rat catcher. And we, it's going to be in some surprising way that we don't know, right? Like that's how it's going to work. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and then she said, how, wait a minute, was, how was he in there? How did they get him in there? And I was like, well, he was smaller. When they in there. <laughs> <laughs> he got bigger afterward. Uh, this is that kind of, this is that kind of movie. Look, I guess. Sa- Santa is magic and he just, he uses his magic to come <laughs> to come down the chimney. You know, he yes, doesn't like yes. a brief yeah. side note by on the presentation of this movie um, is that Star of the Conqueror would have been uh, a lot more enjoyable on an enormous screen. Instead, mm. I was at home watching it on a TV and then uh, also on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> just, just oh, jeez! I, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to watch it um yeah. in any circumstance at all but um yeah this star the conqueror uh his home truly is well it's in the stars but it's also on the big screen yeah well so one thing i mentioned to my wife that i want to bring up here because this seems like as good a point as any unless do you guys have another topic you wanted to jump to right away no let's talk about starro no oh, i don't want to talk about starro oh, no, no, um sorry. i want to talk about uh what i how i described this movie to my wife while we were watching it and the big one was like that there are two leaders of the suicide squad who are both self-consciously Will Smith replacements without being aware of it, right? Like, uh, because they because they have exactly the same backstory, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this dynamic in this movie that John Cena and Idris Elba have word for word the exact same backstory, even after Amanda Waller insists that everybody has a unique backstory, right? Which is, <laughs> which is hilarious, which, hilarious. Which is that their fathers were mercenaries, and when they were like four years old or whatever, they had put a weapon in their hand, and they've been trained their whole life, and now if they get their hands on anything, it's a deadly weapon, right? Um, and so <laughs> a lot of the movie is, you know, the difference, the the difference between Peacemaker and uh, Bloodsport, right? And I love the Peacemaker's cliche, because I've seen that scene so much, too, where he's like, I don't kill people for money, right? So I'm not like you, right? I'm nothing like you. I feel like I've seen that movie in 100 superhero movies, too. I've uh, seen that scene, rather. Um, but the idea that what are the things that Bloodsport versus uh, Peacemaker stand for when so much of them is similar uh, and so much of them is analogous. And it it has a couple of different axes, one of them being aesthetic, right? Like this is like, uh, if you want to, if you want to unpack, if you want to dust off your old uh, uh, art in the age of mechanical reproduction and aesthetic politics and fascism and all that stuff, right? The idea that like there are aesthetic differences 
between Peacemaker and Bloodsport that may or may not be important. Uh, and I guess, I don't know, I was curious about what I'm getting at is what did you guys think of the tidy whitey scene? Uh, which I felt like was more important than it seemed otherwise than it might otherwise be near the beginning, um, near the beginning of the movie. You mean, was it near the beginning? I thought we'd moved along a little bit by that point, but maybe it's in the early part of the plot. Yeah. Right. When they're in, at, at camp. Yeah. They're not and, even, uh, they're not on the Island yet. As I, as I recall, or are they? Are, no, no, no. They're, oh, it's when thought, they get up. It's when they get up in the morning after, after, yeah. after a good, uh, before they kill everyone in the, uh, in the rebel camp. Right. I, I think right. this is also when um, they save uh, Ratcatcher from being eaten by King Shark. Right? Yes, yes, like, yes. There's yes. a whole kerfuffle over that. And That's then, right. Uh, and when John he Cena runs out, yeah, when, when he runs out, yes, he's wearing, uh, yeah. yeah, he's wearing some performance briefs. Yeah. So what I would say is that on one hand, Idris Elba is a good guy and John Cena is a bad guy, right? Like, that's obvious by the by the end of the movie. But on the other hand, Idris Elba is cool and John Cena is not. And I think to an extent, Peacemaker's uncoolness, part of it, I think, is a commentary on his politics. But part of it, I think, is also an undermining of Bloodsport. The, the Bloodsport does all this stuff and then Peacemaker does the exact same thing, but but not cool. Right. Like like Bloodsport's walking through. He's got a, a he's got a, you know, a, a shirt undershirt or whatever. And he's slinging his gun over and he's got his sort of casual pants. And then like Peacemaker's <laughs> doing the same thing, but he has like khaki shorts and a polo shirt. Yeah, Or, he's, right? or, like, or he looks like a, a professional wrestler or something like that. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like he's he, I, it's it is he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's wearing his tidy whities. Yeah. Right. And it's like there there it, it there's this is an it's there's. I'm, I'm stuttering because I feel but like it's a complicated ta- idea. Yeah, what, it's tough to get but right. What you're talking but, about, what, you, what you're talking about, is that there's an implied criticism. It's a reader response thing, right? Like, because yeah. what's being uh, Bloodsport doesn't care about what uh, Bloodsport, Blood, Blood for what the is Blood, his name? yeah, Blood. I'm, uh, I'm kicking Blood confused Oath? with that Vin Diesel, that Vin Diesel movie that went straight to streaming right after COVID. Blood for uh, the Blood God. Uh, is it Blood oh, Sport? Blood Shots. Bloodsport. Oh, there you as, go. As in the Jean-Claude Van Damme martial arts movie. Yeah, because Bloodshot, which is weird. So it's Deadshot. Yeah. Okay. So Deadshot is Will Smith. Yes. Uh, Dead, Deathstroke is Joe Mantiniella. Deadpool is Ryan Williams. Bloodshot is Vin Diesel. No, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan, Ryan Williams is a different guy. Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Did I say Ryan Williams? Yeah. Ryan, it's Ryan Adams. Uh, <laughs> uh, wait, so. Snake and then, Eyes is the guy from Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're all the same character. <laughs> Brian Williams is an anchor on MSNBC. Right, 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 right. And uh, and Michelle Williams is very different. Although also, believe it or not, father was a mercenary, put a weapon in her hand when she was three years old. And uh, anything anything she gets her hands on is just a deadly weapon. Uh, but- <laughs> like, the, like the plot to the first Venom movie, yeah. am I right? <laughs> Woo! Oh, I'm so psyched for Venom too, guys. It's going to be great. Uh, it already is great. It always was great. Um, but but that like Peter, I think I think it's like a it's a reader response type of thing. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Because what's what's being undercut? Well, it's not it's not um you know blood blood god. It's not blood for the blood god who's being undercut. Right. It's uh it's your response to him because like what what makes him cool? Right. It's like cool is a is a, a judgment that's that's you know in the eye of the beholder as as it were. Cool is not an intrinsic attribute of of any of these things and like i i think like i think what what uh james gunn is saying a little bit is like and i you know i put a lot of 
I put a lot of like auteurish uh spin on this like by saying like James Gunn is saying but he did write the script um you know i yeah. think that that like he's I, you know i'm comfortable like ascribing some some authorial intent to to him in this particular you know in this for this particular film because it seems like um that you know his fingerprints are are on it a lot right like what he seems to be saying is like no this is you that's what you do you think this is cool right but mm-hmm. but you're wrong or at least your your point of view is not uh you know um uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be like uh shouldn't go by unquestioned uh, is mm-hmm. is what i'm trying to say but it's not you know it's not Idris Elba's character that that really is undercut by this it's the 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 kind of the audience and the idea of the you know sort of super cool specialist in violence you know, I've done some bad thing. I, I've done some bad things in my time. I'm nobody's hero. That's it. You know, that's a scene yeah. we've seen a million times in the, um, I mean, you know, I'm I don't know. Hero. I'm a monster, right? right. <laughs> I don't belong anywhere. I'm half man, half raccoon. Yeah. Uh, except he says, <laughs> I'm it a torture. I'm t- I live a tortured existence. Yeah, exactly. I made a deal with the devil and it's time to pay the piper. Oh, that's rats. There we go. Uh, so, okay, so let's talk about the beach full of dicks. Right? <laughs> it is time to talk about the beach full of dicks. Um, so, uh, and as I said, you know, Starro is not not a butthole uh, because there is a, on top of all of the political stuff that we talked about, on top of all the art criticism stuff that we've talked about, there, this also is a movie that has a fair amount of, of body exploration, Right. Like I would just I'm trying to get the right terminology for it. I mean, James Gunn was a trauma guy. Right. At one point um, or something was along those lines. Full on was, was James actual, trauma? actual trauma. Pe- pe- James Gunn people actual don't know. Trauma. Will you unfold for people what trauma is? Because, though, you know, you and I have have met Lloyd Kaufman. Uh, the uh, I'm not sure everyone is is really aware of. of yeah. The, we, well, I used to live like two blocks away from the trauma offices. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, he came when we when we were in college. Oh, he in college, showed yeah. up to screen one to screen a trauma film. I think Tromeo and Juliet. Yeah. So trauma. I mean, again, I'm not the biggest trauma enthusiast and I'll probably get some bits of it wrong. But what I think of it as is as a famous and storied B movie production and distribution company. Yeah. Right. That is that you might know them from the Toxic Avengers, who a- achieved a sort of brief crossover popularity in the 90s, which started out as a series of ex- sort of I- I'll use the term exploitation, but that's not meant in a Marxist sense. Right. Like, uh, no, it's, meant, it's like, meant that's that's what the genre is called, though. They're they're exploitation yeah, yeah, yeah. movies. They're, they're exactly. movies for a very niche uh, niche audience, you know? Yeah. And this is the idea that there are things that people want to see that they don't get to see and that they will pay to see. Right. And so if you can dis- and so a lot of movies will go to a lot of trouble to lampshade that they are doing this by like adding a whole bunch of other important stuff. Right. Like, you know, this is the sort of I'm going to watch this. You know, I'm going to watch Dances with Wolves for the or for the 90 seconds of nudity or so or the postman or whatever. Right. Like trauma is like, no, no, no. There's like there's going to be, you know, violence and sex and 
and kind of like low yeah, budget, or like you know, when, very goosey when, when Stella's getting her groove back, right, and she's in her like tropical paradise, and there's yeah. a you know there's a slow motion shot of a very good looking guest. You know, a, a, a very young fit man, like getting out of the water in slow motion. The, you know, the, this is the kind of, the, this is the movie lampshading that like, Hey, this is, you know, this is for you because you don't, you know, yeah. you don't get this, uh, yeah. you know, whereas, this, whereas, yeah. 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 Whereas trouble will distribute the killer condom, right? Like the germ is, I think, uh, uh, as a French movie or no, it's Eastern European, maybe, um, about like a condom that bites people's dicks off. Right. And like that's not lampshading anything. You know, if anything, it's taking the shade off the lamp. Right. Um, The main character's name is Luigi Macaroni. Right. Uh, And like and so 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 you're thinking about, you know, gross is a trademark of theirs. Uh, Butts and penises and kind of puppets and prosthetics, I would I would say, are like aesthetic trademarks of something you would believe to be associated with trauma. There's Tromeo and Juliet, which is a famous trauma movie. Uh, and that is James Gunn wrote Tromeo and Juliet. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so Tromeo and Juliet, which again has the name of Troma in it, right? Uh, which is uh, directed by Lloyd Kaufman and written by him and James Gunn working together. Uh, now, I don't really know. Is Lloyd Kaufman the same guy from Adaptation? No, that's no, Charlie that's Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> I was like, man, that that worlds are colliding. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's the founder of Troma Entertainment. Uh, and um, he's a, like a Roger Corman esque, you yes. know, kind of B movie yeah. impresario. Yeah, Roger Corman is a good person to compare it to, right? Like what Roger Corman does with monsters, Troma does with penises. Uh, maybe is one way to put sure. it. So, like, like it's like uh, you can think of him in, in another way as kind of a, a less arty John Waters. Yes, yes, yes. So so these are the names you should be thinking of as people who are in sort of like when we discovered in one of our in our podcast about Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood doing our research. Uh, or no, maybe it was the podcast about Spider-Man Homecoming that Michael Keaton is Mr. Rogers posse. Like he got his start working for Mr. Rogers. And you hear that and you're like, oh, that makes sense. He's from the Pittsburgh art scene. Uh. That kind of intuitively makes sense. There are certain things about his style that kind of feel a little bit like Mr. Rogers in certain ways. When you're thinking about James Gunn, you should be not thinking necessarily just about people like Taiko Waititi, right? And like, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, I almost said Jonathan Franzen. Um, no. Wh- who is the guy who did Iron Man? Why am I blanking on his name right now? John Favreau. John Favreau, John Favreau not Jonathan Franzen, did Iron Man. <laughs> but you, so you should think about, you know, John Favreau and Taika Waititi and like the super and, and um, you know, all the superhero directors. But you should also be thinking of like John Waters and Lloyd Kaufman and Roger Corman because James Gunn was in the B movie scene, which, you know, Jack Nicholson was there, too, back in the day. Right. Sure. Uh, Jack it, Nicholson you know, appeared in the, the original Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. So like in the scene in this movie where Ratcatcher 2 is in the hallway and and uh, Starro's thick, meaty arm is like penetrating and destroying the hallway to chase her like that's part of his oeuvre. Right. That's part of his body of work to be associated with that sort of thing. Right. And it is sexual. Right. A lot of this movie is very sexual. Um and in addition to being political, in addition to being meta artistic. Uh, and I think that this goes to this goes back to what a reading as a sort of psychosexual reading of politics, which is not that uncommon. Right. The idea that peacemaker who says he doesn't do things for money, but does things for an economic order. 
right? So in that sense, he's doing it for money, right? Uh, who says he will kill as many people as possible to keep the peace, right? Um, and that he will follow orders in, in, in defense of liberty, right? It has all these sort of paradoxes about himself. Also has this like very intense homo social homoerotic uh, thing going on with the, you know, I will, what does he say he'll do to the beach full of dicks? He, he will eat them all. Eat them all. Eat all the dicks. Yeah, that's the right. that's the. Uh, I feel like our chili peppers are going to go up on this one, but that <laughs> like, but we're we are quoting, we are quoting directly, yeah. we are quoting directly from the film, um, the film, the the work of film art, uh, by by trauma auteur James Gunn. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, even his name, my goodness, the uh, the um. Yeah. Yeah, that, that like, and this is like, this is a way of kind of undercutting the macho aspects of militarism. You know, it, it's done like very subtly in, in Stanley Kubrick's in Full Metal Jacket, right? In that, that Arlie Ermey first scene, right? When, when, uh, Arlie Ermey says to, uh, says to one of the recruits as he's abusing them all, like, um, but there's some salty language um, that I'm going to have to elide here, but, uh, I'll bet you're the, you're, you're the kind of guy who would, uh, who would F a guy in the A and not even give him a reach around, you know, mm-hmm. and that like, you know, uh, and, and this is like, he, he's like, he's doing this, you know, Kubrick, Kubrick is doing this undercutting thing that people that, you know, sort of subversive, uh, directors will do with, with the military to kind of like undercut the macho, uh, the macho nature, uh, of it and the kind of the macho, the macho posturing, right? Like, because mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, the, uh, another thing that he says in that, uh, in that same monologue is, you know, only two things come out of Texas, uh, steers and queers, and you don't look like you have any horns. Uh, so, you know, you get some, you get some good, like, yes. uh, the response get- is, I, but tell, shall you have the horns on you whilst I <laughs> dally with your lady love? With my tongue in your tail? Ah, Kate, I am a gentleman. <laughs> um, but the, you know, but that like, you know, the, the, it's, you know, we have this like, you know, we have this like cruel, uh, homophobic, uh, sexual orientation baiting and, and abuse around that, you know, around that by like calling people gay. But like, you know what, in here, here in the military, the real crime is to not give a reach around. You know, yeah. the, the real, the, the real, that's the real, that's the real problem. That's the real un-American thing yeah. to do. And that like, I, th- you know, I think that this like the kind of, and it's actually like credit to John Cena who just sells the heck out of that. Oh yeah. Uh, out of that speech, like with, with conviction and commitment, the kind of commitment that you really want to teach to like high school trauma students. I wish, uh, you know what? Every high school trauma student in the country should work on this model. Yeah. Right. It should be assigned. It should be required. It should be required, required reading, but that like, you know, that like the, uh, yeah, I, I will be the, you know, I will go, I'll do the, it, it doesn't even get at the, like the abject, of of being the despised other homosexual you know it doesn't it yeah. doesn't even engage that it's like no i will i will eat that beach full of dicks and i will you know i will do it for liberty and for the principles that 
um, that I believe in. And like, you know, the, the, the gleam in his eye tells you that, that it's exactly what he wants to do. <laughs> liberty, <laughs> liberty be damned. Um, right. right. And that like, you know, that these, you know, that these forces, all these, uh, you know, all these forces, which are, you know, at yeah. least some of, su- some of these at work forces are the same that burn crosses, by the way, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is only half a joke. See, it, Mark is serious, but it's not solemn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Go ahead. I interrupted. Well, yeah, that, that these, you know, that these sort of the, the idea is that it's, it's subversive. It's giving the lie yeah. to, to the, um, you know, it's, it's subverting the authority of like macho, macho expectations and the kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, um, well, what Starship Troopers says, you know, and that is the force is violence, the single authority through which all other authority comes. It's revealing the kind of the, the, uh, absurdity and a, a kind of like inconsistency or a sort of bankruptcy in, in, in it. it. Kind of in the same way that like, oh, you think, you know, you think Idris Elba is cool. You think you're, you know, your, your, uh, pick for James Bond, you know, as a, <laughs> as a specialist in violence is like suave and cool and stuff like that. Like really, how is how is he different from from this guy in his in his tidy whities right, right, so, right got a couple of things here one is that like if in case you just stated earlier right like the Idris Elba character is there as a direct um kind of commentary and undermining not only of uh of, of peace peacekeeper john cena but also will smith's set shot right so just like make sure you check that box off there but the other thing um well i mean do you want to talk about that a little bit because it's like what, what do you mean by that Oh, it's it's just like, you know, Will Smith's character from the first movie um, was played more dramatically, also had a younger daughter mm-hmm. um, who was trying to make good by. Um, and uh, it was kind of generally seen as like a, as a waste of uh, of Will Smith's charisma and interest. Right. Um, I, we could talk about that more, but I think the more interesting thing to talk about that we've been alluding to uh, earlier as well is uh, it is very much more in keeping with the discussion around sex and body and penetration stuff is the javelin of destiny. Yes, yes. Can we talk about that? Destiny. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So, brief plot recap for those who are joining us with only a partial understanding of the plot of the Suicide Squad is that. <laughs> Oh, it's so great. God bless um, you. <laughs> one, one of the squad members who dies in, in the botched raid on the, on the beach uh, is like Javelin Man. And Harley Quinn picks up the Javelin uh, as Javelin Man says in his dying breath, use this Javelin for... Uh... <laughs> Harley Quinn is trying to figure out for what? Use it for what? And by the end of the movie, she figures it out, which is that she used to penetrate the orifice of... Sorrow, the conqueror. Yes. Um, would you say? Would you say that that uh, she she rams it into the brown eye of the starfish? Uh, she does precisely <laughs> that. Yes, um, okay, and she it. creates a breach, um, and into which all the rats go, so where they can consume and kill Sorrow, the conqueror, yes. from the inside. Yes. Um, it's it's it is very gory, for sure. Um, and you know that speaks to all of the kind of the bee horror stuff that that we talked about before. Um, but there's uh, there's there's some sex stuff going on there, right? Is is Richard can, Gere? Can you guys tell me about the sex stuff? The <laughs> <laughs> I well, I suppose the the I mean the the Harley Quinn uh, thing where she's she's you know she's interesting. She's the the kind of the like the absurd. She's the mirror universe version of. Um, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow in this, you know, mm-hmm. that that like Black Black Widow was always the 
the interesting thing is very Whedon-esque, you know, um, the idea of, uh, of Black Widow, at least in the first Avengers movie, was that she was, whenever she seemed to be vulnerable, she was actually using the vulnerability to her advantage to kind of like get something that, that she wanted. Like at, at the beginning, you know, when the, when Clark Gregg calls her and it's like, Oh, you know, uh, you have to, you have to come in. She's like, I, I, this guy was giving me every, everything I want. And because she was damsel and distressing, the, the villain was just like, you know, spilling his secret plan or whatever. Um, that like, but this is, this is sort of a version of that. Like there is a sort of, I don't know, uh, you know, there's like, oh, I don't need, uh, what does she call him? Mr. J. I don't need the Joker anymore. She's like, she's broken up with the Joker. They're not a, they're not a thing anymore. She's not defined by that relationship. And so there, there is an aspect of this, you know, story where it's, you know, she's coming into her own. She's sort of doing it for herself. And like, so, uh, you know, at the very basic level, part, part of that is, is, you know, she, she grasps a hold of the javelin, you know, she doesn't need, uh, she doesn't need, um, Jared Leto, I suppose, to hold the javelin for her uh, anymore. She's she's got her old. She's got her own. Um, Harley's Harley's are doing it for themselves, and that's that's like uh, that's the the superficial um, uh, reading of this, I guess. That that, but you know, I don't know. Pete, do you want to go into a more involved one? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go in from a different continuum. It felt to me that. Of all, because obviously, as I've been saying, right, I I read this movie as having a lot of different angles of meta commentary on previous Suicide Squad movie, right? Other hero superhero movies, uh, other movies in general, you know, art objects in general, like all these different sort of dimensions, politics, right? To me, the javelin reflected the absurdity of superhero filmmaking in a different way which is you get assigned to make a superhero movie about some absurd person. And the question hangs of why are you doing this? Right? Like, Oh, you're going to make the next Ant-Man movie, right? What? Why? Right? <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do with Ant-Man? Right? Uh, I've been given a guy who can turn into a size of an ant, right? Like, what is it that kind of commands me, you know, guides me, you know, what's what does success look like right in this kind of endeavor um, it, to be bequeathed? Oh, it looks imp- like the sharp cheekbones of Paul Rudd is what, <laughs> is what it looks like. I, I guess I mean, the, the simplest way to look at it is that, you know, superhero movies, superhero stories don't make any sense without supervillains or without somebody being in danger. There's no without somebody to save. You can read it that way, where you can say the reason that Harley Quinn figures out what to do with the javelin is she realizes that it's a superhero weapon and she needs to act like a superhero with it. Um, Although it's more like something out of 300, right, (laughs) specifically. And again, so so there's there's multiple different things that are happening at once. I think part of it is that – you know, it's like indeed in the DC movies in particular, there's just been this sense of flailing about trying to figure out what it is they're supposed to be doing. Right. And we talked about this with regards to Space Jam, too. Right. Where well, these movies, to an extent, are meta Warner Brother movies about owning intellectual property and like feeling under a lot of pressure to make money with it, but having no idea how to do it in contemporary economy. I would also add that there is some, Jordan had told me about this once, that there is a psychological image of a woman with a phallus that is used as sort of a term of art 
in the analysis of stories like this. Um, I mean, just what the phallic woman. Uh, but but he Jordan was talking to me about it in reference to Red Sonia um, and so many of the you know, you're familiar with Red Sonia and the sort of female barbarian uh, uh, trope out of like heavy metal. And, you know, the like if James Gunn is in the like John Waters and Roger Corman sort of universe, uh, Harley Quinn with a javelin is in the like airbrushed band, Ronnie J- Van, Ronnie James Dio, right? Uh, Conan the Barbarian universe also. Right. It's like uh, I mean, it's Brigitte Nielsen in the first Red Sonja movie. Um, But that, yeah, that, as you said, she's doing it for herself. She has the phallus. Right. Um, The golden phallus. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so, you know, she is not an other. You know, she is not the uh, she is not a sort of counterpart to any other person, which is, I think, why it was important that she killed the dictator. Right. Because the dictator wanted her to be character development for him. And sh- and instead, her killing him was character development for her, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean... So the, the, yeah. um, the phallic mother, I think, is what... The phallic mother is what I'm talking about is, specifically. Yeah, is the one yeah, you're talking yeah. about. So, um, I was uh, trying to remember the this terminology. It's from, from an overthinking it post from 2008. Oh, so good. if you were remembering this... That's my this, favorite it's, reference. It's yeah, a good, exactly. That's a very good pull. But uh, it was about uh, movie posters with mm. um, women holding guns at about you know mid body level at about right. about the level of their their crotch. So you know the, it includes Red Sonia. Um, yeah. You know uh, the I guess the the Terminator uh, the Lena Headey Terminator thing on on Fox. Um, yeah. That you know, she had a big, big rifle there. Um, La Femme Nikita, you know, had mm-hmm. a had a, a gun there. Then some, some things like um, some horror movie posters and and stuff like that. And the the title of the article is "Her Ability to Shoot a Gun Was So the Film's Advertisers Could Put Her on a Poster Wearing a Skimpy Outfit with a Big Gun Between Her Legs." Yeah. So what Jordan writes in his article is that it's a Freudian concept that is he and this is Jordan 13 years ago. So he might have revised his thinking about it since then. Um, But the idea is that it's a Freudian concept about little boys who can't comprehend or can't handle that their mothers are different from them in how their bodies work sexually. And so develop a fantasy of a woman who has a penis. Right. Or a big phallus um, to sort of deal with that anxiety. Right. Uh, and it's a way of coping with castration anxiety. Of course, none of this stuff is real, right? Like, as in, like, these are not necessarily things that you would find in the observational practice of psychology, right, or psychiatry. But they are part of, uh, you know, essay tradition and psychological tradition and the tradition of art as it engages with early psychology. Um, and so, yeah, so the idea being that um, Harley Quinn with a javelin is uh, a a kind of uh, coping tool for James Gunn. I don't know where this goes, but the, the point is that there's a, the, that it's it's. I think I think where it goes is it goes back to the like trauma stuff and the idea of Freudian sexual imagery as a powerful organizing principle for exploitation cinema, right? And like uh, I mean, th- this is the kind of stuff that is the Justin Lin. Ge- you know, geometric organizing principle of this movie. Yeah, but it doesn't is like, yeah. Oh, sorry. Finish the, the, cause you were somewhere. Oh. Good. Yeah, yeah. This is like, this is a movie about penetration, 
Mm. Uh, that this is a movie where the Suicide Squad is penetrating Corto Maltese. This is a movie that has the penetrating javelin, right? They penetrate Starro. The flag dies with like a penetration in his heart. Um, there's the idea of like Idris Elba covered in rats, right? That are going to bite him potentially, but that don't, right? Um, also, the, uh, you know, the main locus oh, no, of the, yeah. the main locus of the movie is a big sticky up tower. You know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Cena has the long gun, and Idris Elba has the thing where he touches himself and his gun gets bigger. Uh, which is like, <laughs> I mean, it's so cool. You know, it's like a whole beach full of dicks, uh, <laughs> except it's on your clothes. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the scene where Idris Elba runs out of dicks is like one of the great tragedies of the Suicide Squad because you just thought he was going to have one more dick handy, but then he reached, you know, he reached around and there was nothing there. Uh, but then I, you know, no, I, I also, I also, I think that like, it's, you're wrong. It would be wrong of us to, to look here for argumentation, right? Because yeah, the, I like how you're going to say I was wrong, but then you softened it to be nice to me, which I appreciate no, 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 it, but it's, it's not okay. Yeah. I, I don't think you're doing it. I think that, that yeah. the point that you're making about the kind of the, the, um, Freudian, like psychosexual and, and not even all Freudian, but the psychosexual yeah, phantasmagoria yeah. of, right. right. Of Suicide Squad is that it's not, it, this is not, th- this is a film that, that traffics in, uh, in monsters from the id, in, in images that sort of come from or speak to the unconscious, right. And, th- mm-hmm. and that like, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a kind of cut and dried, like rational, uh, a rational thing, which is why the most rational thing about it, which is that the, you know, poor downtrodden people, um, you know, of this Central American island want to, uh, I don't know, want to, want to have a, a revolution and, and create a socialist utopia. Um, there was, uh, and, and, uh, you know, good luck to them. <laughs> much good, much good may it do them. But yeah. the, uh, they have no infrastructure anymore because Starro <laughs> destroyed it all. So, you know, can it go back to like a subsistence agrarian, agrarian economy? But that's, you know, that's a, we probably can, can work out your, your commune at, at that level. But that like, um, you know, what, what it's saying, not to get all on Monty Python a little bit is, but what it's saying is like, oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Now you see the violence, you know, now you see the, like the, the, uh, the sort of twisted kind of diseased sexuality inherent in the system. Right. And the fact that, you know, the fact that you think that this is all cool, you know, that like the fact that the fact and, and, uh, like, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not better than, I'm not better than you and I'm not better than this. It wasn't just cool. It was awesome. Yeah. You know, um, Pete Wentz got not Pete Wentz, Pete, Pete Holmes, not Pete Holmes, Pete, <laughs> Brian Williams, <laughs> Brian Williams got his William face. Carlos Williams, Brian Williams got his face exploded right. on, the, on the beach. It's the first yeah. thing that, that Pete happened. Davidson. Yes, Pete Davidson. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> I actually figured it out after, but I, I was really committed to the bit um, that, uh, you know, like, uh, Right. That, that it's all, you know, the, the workings, what, what it does is sort of make explicit in, in a, you know, in a kind of representational register and a heightened representational register. What is the, you know, the kind of the sickness inherent in the, in the normal operating 
of the, you know, this like this is the kind of stuff that that you don't see in the MCU because Tony Stark has to go to like special clubs downtown to to do yeah. all of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like uh when he really needs to get, you know, to to blow off to blow off some steam. Um and that's like that that's uh, what's going on here and it's uh, like I said I actually sort of welcome this I welcome this development and I welcome this like um uh, this uh, kind of intrusion, this penetration of uh, of transgressive or subversive cinema into a mainstream superhero movie, right? Like, but it, I feel like you got there, you got there a, a little bit, at least in in um, you know, in terms of like undercutting some of the solemnity of the whole thing in Guardians, and uh, and now this is you know now this is another. Uh, this is another um, this is another step in in you know what I think ultimately is a good direction. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I just want to just remind us that two Deadpool movies do exist. <laughs> to be fair, 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 they're doing they're doing they're doing different things. Um, but it, it seems like in particular, like for the DC canon um, and that kind of whole other separate realm of superhero movies, like this is a much needed shot of absurdity. I so, think you're, yeah. I think you're right, Mark. The, the, the thing I'd say is that the Deadpool movies are mannerist, whereas this is, is something else, you know, this, is, this is a little more, this is a little grittier somehow. This is more about the world and the, the Deadpool movies are like, are a little more high modernist. Are you, are you calling it? Or yeah. The Deadpool movies are, are yeah, they have a, a greater degree of kind of orchestration to them. Whereas this is a movie where Academy Award winner Viola Davis like drops twelve f bombs and then gets hit in the head with a golf club, <laughs> like, which which I don't think happened in Fences, uh, <laughs> 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 which I saw in the theater, uh, which is oh, amazing. Right. This is a movie that Viola Davis can be proud to be part of, finally, right? Because <laughs> I, I don't know. The thing that really stuck with me uh, from all that was when she won her Oscar and, like, her coworkers won the uh, won an Oscar at the same time, right? Like, because Suicide Squad did well, – no, did, was it nominated or did it win? Did Suicide Squad win an Oscar for makeup or just got nominated for an Oscar for makeup? Um, oh, probably we, just nominated. We, we usually our joke is the Oscar-winning film Suicide Squad. Is oh, it yeah, just yeah, yeah. the Oscar-nominated film Suicide Squad? Oh no, no, did Suicide Squad? Um, it totally won. It totally won. Did Oscar? Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Because it was funny because Viola Davis has won the Academy Award for Best Actress, and Suicide Squad won the Academy Award for Best Makeup. And I never got the sense that Viola Davis like was like, yeah, good job, team. <laughs> like, because I don't know if, if she like publicly wanted to be associated with it after the finished product. But I feel like one of the good things about this movie is it's something that Viola Davis uh, maybe can be prouder to be part of. Although it was a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a kind of unearned plot point that they incapacitated her with head trauma. Um, I would have liked to have seen something a little bit more clever than that. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't the most. But, you know, the film's heart was not in the control room. The film's heart was on the island. That's true. That's true. Yeah. The film's heart was in the middle of the starfish. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we, might, we might need to, to, to leave it there. I mean, we've penetrated so far into the darkness of the starfish. I'm not I'm not sure we can uh, even extricate ourselves from that. But but I think we have to leave it there. So thank you very much for listening, Pete and Mark. Thank you for uh, for taking this uh, this journey with me back to back to a bell rev we go uh, to get you know to get locked back up until the next time uh, we need 
and Overthinking It podcast. And that'll be next week. <laughs> Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. I heard there was a secret chord <laughs> that David played to please the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do ya? It would have been so perfect. <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> a starfish hallelujah. <laughs>